You are listening to the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund Podcast. In this month's episode, we talk to publisher, editor, translator, and writer Anne Ishii. Anne is the co-founder and owner of Massive Goods, a publishing house that we will discuss at length in the course of the interview. The CBLDF podcast is part of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund's ongoing education program, and we appreciate you taking time to listen. My name is Alex Cox. I'm the host and producer of this podcast, and now I will turn the microphone over to our guest. My name is Anne Ishii. I'm the owner and co-founder of Massive Goods. We purvey queer and feminist comics from Japan, translated into English, rendered into clothing, yada yada, a lot of imports. Um, and then I on my own, I'm a writer and editor translator for a bunch of other stuff. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the creators that you're currently translating and publishing? Yeah. Um, I should start, as ever, with Gengar Tagame. Um, he's just published his first all-ages title with Pantheon, which is huge, because it's also Pantheon's first manga, actually, and um, which is also kind of mind-blowing, considering, you know, manga's been literary for, like, 30 years now, as far as American market's concerned. But... Um, you know, so he's somebody I translate and agent and whose career I kind of manage in North America. So that's exciting. Um, he feels very much like a deep part of the work I do. And then I also represent Jiraiya, who is sort of the equal and opposite of Tagame because he's probably close to as important as he is aesthetically, just the influence he's wielded on... <clears throat> Gay artists in Japan is really immeasurable, but he's much more reclusive and his stories are very, you know, for a recluse, he actually writes extremely friendly, positive, open, you know, cheerful narratives. Takami's work is literally the exact opposite of all of those adjectives. So that's kind of neat. I feel like I work with, like my joke is he's the god, Takami is like the godfather of gay manga and Jiraiya's like the fairy godmother. And, uh, so those are the two primary artists. And then, of course, Rokuda Nashiko, who does uh, all of the Manko art, the pussy art. And um, I also manage her North American stuff and translate for her. She's neat. She's, she's so funny. Like, if she were American, it, you know, it's like I just feel like she was born in the wrong place basically she would thrive in america um i want to get back to the other guys but can you talk a little bit about her work and um and some of her her legal troubles as yeah. as of late i mean i think the story everybody knows or should know is that she was arrested on charges of distributing obscenity after doing a crowdfunding to make a kayak shaped like her vagina so Basically, the kayak itself wasn't the problem, but the fact that it was a crowdfunded project meant she was, quote, distributing obscene information because it was ostensibly like the rewards were obscene. But um, it's an open source 3D file, like a scan of her vulva. But if you look at the file, like literally, there's no way 
you would be titillated by it. I mean, it just looks like an architectural blueprint. But I guess their argument was that anybody could take that and like make some monster vagina thing. And uh, really, you know, the the underlying story with that is that, of course, it's a very sexist conviction because it's just because it's a vagina or a vulva. Um, portrayals of penises don't really go through that same scrutiny or tits for that matter like everybody loves a cute tit but just because it's pussy people are losing their minds and um, as of now she's she was convicted initially of just the one charge of two the second charge was on whether the art itself is considered an obscenity and they ruled in favor of her so it's not obscene and that's also ironic um they didn't they considered it in obscene or not obscene because it was showcased in a woman's only sex shop so in a very contained context and they said therefore it doesn't arouse reckless excitement or titillation like those are the standards of obscenity for them is that it causes quote reckless dangerous sexual excitement and um of course that's presuming women can't get turned on by depictions of women. So it's a little bit dumb. She is now in appeals and, and then the higher court, so the lower court convicted her of the distribution charge. The higher court upheld the conviction. She's now taking it to superior court um, to, you know, she continues to appeal the charge basically. Um, can you speak to her her other work just to put this in context a little bit and like the yeah. broader sense of her her overall work, body of work? Yeah, what's interesting is I think today she's known a lot. I mean, in the mainstream as this kayak artist or this person who does uh, decoupage or collage or works in three D art. Um, she's by trade a cartoonist. She's a mangaka. Um, everything from sort of short form editorials to longer form graphic novels, but all in this vein of um, nonfiction memoir or like sort of, uh, I call it reality manga because it's not just memoir, it's also just like event specific. So for her, the first full length manga she wrote was about um, the surgery she got done on her labia there's a scientific term for it i'm not remembering um labiaplasty i think it's like what here we sort of colloquially call a rejuvenation surgery mm -hmm. to make your labia more trim or whatever and you know she goes at length to explain that this wasn't like the result of some body dysmorphia or anything she just genuinely was curious what it meant to get that done and it seemed like completely non-invasive, um, you know, relatively accessible and to her not very different from getting her hair dyed or whatever. Um, she has a very interesting approach to sort of body politics in that sense because as far as she's concerned, you know, woman's allowed to do whatever she wants with her body and the pussy has been so misunderstood because it's been underrepresented and undervalued as as a potential for, you know, narrative. Um, she's really 
not thinking about it as like this metaphorical literary space and it's not some like she's not very concerned with the actual physiology it's more just like you know she kind of wants pussy to become the next poop emoji so (laughs) (laughs) she's i mean she's doing the functional equivalent of putting googly eyes on it (laughs) right oh but has this been like a long time theme in her work or is this just kind of a, a new she's been doing this for a while yeah i think um I should know this, but I'm going to say it goes back at least 12 years and probably longer than that. Um, You know, she'd been doing the sort of rote manga work that a lot of young professionals do, um, submitting into weeklies and um, uh, applying to, like, competitions, that kind of thing, which is very normal for, like, aspiring professional mangaka, but found it was really hard and kind of not worthwhile for her. So um, finding the story from within herself is was, was a key turning point in her career. And now she's, you know, now she's really in it. Um, yeah. We should give the title of the American edition of her book so that people can track that down if they're interested in what we're talking about. Uh, what is obscenity? The true story of a good for nothing artist and her pussy. Yeah. What is obscenity is all you need to know. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a funny book. It's really good. And I feel like it could easily become part of this, like, it could be an educational tool. Like, it's a lot of information. Cool. Do you want to uh, talk a little bit about um, about your other artists? Because I think that the context there is pretty interesting, too. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, Gengar Tagame, I mentioned, um, you know, he is as far as I know, and I, I might be corrected on this later, the only um, standalone full-time openly gay manga artist in Japan who does this full-time. And his work is so important, but not just because uh, it's it represents, you know, a queer narrative, but because he as a person is out, which is sadly not very common in Japan for artists to be completely out yet. I mean, that's not to say there aren't people that are, but it's just, you know, like here I feel like I kind of take for granted that you don't even have to come out. You just kind of are gay and, and then you're doing work and then, you know what I mean? Like it almost feels irrelevant for an artist to come out. Cause it's like, of course being gay is just one very small aspect of their career. Right, but um, it's a lot riskier to come out in Japan because there aren't workplace protections guarding against uh, illegal firing or, or harassment, and not that those are things that happen regularly. And certainly, they don't come from these artists aren't in a puritanical place like in the U.S., where you get West Westboro Baptist Church, you know, saying outrageous things or anything weird like that. But it's just like the the sort of um, the lightweight harassment they're scared of, I think, is somewhat of a barrier to coming out. So anyway, his being out and about is kind of awesome. Um, he co-founded and started this magazine. Everybody knows G-Men. Um, and it was, I think, the second by gay men for gay men um, sort of general interest magazine came out right after 
Body or Sabu. There's like a handful of these magazines that came out in the 80s and 90s. Um, half of them are closed, unfortunately, or online only. But, um, you know, in the heyday of magazines, I think globally, the 90s, it was a really important magazine that launched a lot of careers for gay cartoonists. And um, Jiraiya is actually part of that. Um, Tagami brought him in as the cover art director when he left in 2000. So there's a really strong relationship between magazine publishing and comics publishing in Japan. The These are the only two people that you've published so far? Um, we've done work with a bunch of other artists. Those are the only two whose original stuff we're doing as massive. But in our uh, anthology, we showcase nine artists. I also translate an artist named Takeshi Matsu for Gmunder books. And um, he's very different. He's a, he's a tiny bit younger than them. Well, a, a lot younger than them, but still in his 40s. Um, and his work is more sort of romance and less hardcore BDSM. Um, and he crosses over into sort of BL Yaoi. So, I, yeah. I was just about to ask how how this stuff intersects with Yaoi. I mean, I know personally that like when you look at it, it's kind of a real evident on the surface difference yeah. with the Tagame stuff. But I mean, is, is there some intersection? Is there some overlap? Yeah. I, these days there is, um, I think once upon a time earlier, there were clear divisions in style and community. Um, one was decidedly, female femme and the other was decidedly male mask and Tagame himself has actually contributed to BL magazines and there are BL artists who contribute to the gay manga magazines so you know the boundaries are a lot more porous for sure but I think the biggest difference is just generally in the readership actually like there are huge communities of women who get together and talk about yaoi BL um, who don't cross over into the by men for men reading community. Um, but yeah, it's really complicated. I don't even know where to begin with that because I suppose it's not unlike how we think about uh, single gender narratives in the U.S., like stuff that immediately gets rendered homoerotic versus hyper-masculine macho or when we say things like lesbian porn here like that could either mean something made for men or for women right. and they're very different um but yeah yaoi bl is changing so much and i think because it's a bigger industry there's a bigger market for it it's a lot more interesting to see how that has evolved you know the genre is very heterogeneous now it goes super dark, super hardcore to extremely lightweight romance, you know, um, PG content. So See, the PG content is what I associate with it immediately, but it's, I guess it's got a broader scope now. Yeah, for sure. There's been very sexually transgressive BL Yaoi and, you know, the joke used to be that gay men would read it 
and say, God, these women have clearly never seen men interact with each other, much less maybe seen genitalia because it looks so disproportionate or just kind of wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like a pencil thin penis with no hair just looks really weird, but you almost forgive it because a young woman wrote it. Um, and that, I think that aesthetic has changed a lot. Um, is the, I mean, the acceptance of Yaoi, just the kind of general acceptance nationally, is, is that just because of the target audience being primarily women or is it, is there something Uh, else that I'm missing there? That's a really good question. I'm not a hundred percent sure how to answer it, but I know one of the reasons it's succeeded in the mainstream isn't because the readers are women. It's because the editors are straight men. So a lot of this stuff is published in with imprints that are run by um, people who see this as a market opportunity. I mean, if gay manga were more popular, I think more straight men would be interested in editing it. But as it is, it's a cottage industry whose primary fans and primary editors are exactly the same people. Right. I mean, that's it's so odd that that's, that it really just comes down to like who's controlling the content. I mean, I guess yeah. it's not because that's the way the world works, I guess, but it's No, weird. I mean, it, it, I think what's interesting, this goes for most cottage industries actually, is that the people vested in creating it and making the platforms and supporting the marketplace, you know, when you're a part of it, uh, you want very different things than the guy just looking strictly at the numbers. And, What's interesting, I think, with gay manga, you know, like I said, it's a it comes from a magazine system and magazines come from a social system. So, you know, magazines thrive because it helped people find each other like the, you know, the revenue stream wasn't necessarily advertising or selling on stands. It was classifieds. And this is what was also a big part of, you know, newspapers and magazines in the U.S., but um, personal ads and classifieds were a huge part of that income. Um, That disappears and, you know, the magazine changes completely. Um, But, you know, just another kind of weird piece of trivia in Japanese gay publishing history is a lot of the first publishers were also part of the service industry. Like, these are you know, the only gay people that really had a public interest in the gay community were gay bars and gay bar owners and people who ran bathhouses and places where gay men met. So, you know, a bar owner is going to have a very different view of what a magazine can do than, say, a publishing executive or an editor. Right. It's interesting that extreme extremely like pornographic content is fairly accepted it's not that mm-hmm. controversial and yeah. yaoi is fairly accepted but when you mix the two with the tagame stuff it seems like it's fairly is is it relatively underground i mean no i don't know i mean i think there are a few sort of things i want to untangle with this idea one is tagame has actually been pretty widely received by a very diverse audience. Like he has a lot of women 
fans. Um, I, I guess if, if I can interject really quick, we should mention yeah. that he's one of the most talented illustrators. His stuff is yeah. absolutely striking and beautiful. Yeah. So I can see where just, I mean, in terms of like sheer talent and sheer like visible talent. Yeah. He, he's an amazing cartoonist. Yeah. That's all. Yeah, it's true. And I think I'd say the same for Jirai, actually. Oh, he's yeah, definitely. A really amazing draftsman who, if Jirai decided today to just drop his day job and focus exclusively on comics, he could easily be the next, like, I don't know, like, Urasawa or, like, Otomo, like literally he's that good. He's like so talented and trained and has done a lot of amazing uh, work as a young person. He's developed into an amazing veteran of the craft. Um, so you're right there. It's worth noting that uh, we're not just talking about content. These are actual formalists who yeah. do really great form, um, not just content. Not, that's not to be dismissive of anybody who's, you know, actually, I can't think of anybody who does like a formal, <laughs> unformalist manga. I feel like that's what drives people to that media, actually, is that they're obsessed with the draftsman quality. Well, there know? might be like another like end of the spectrum with like Crayon Shinchan and things like that that look a little. <laughs> Actually, since you mention it, you're totally right. I just remembered um, there's a four-panel artist. Uh, what's his name? I'm actually just pulling the book out now. Uh, called Today's Gay Bar, and it's it's not that it's bad, but it's clearly more about the story. It's these little snippets in the life of stories in a gay bar, written like in really coarse pencil. Mm -hmm. um, looks like his name is Tsukuru. Anyway. To go back, though, to the idea of Tagami's work versus Yaoi versus mainstream versus underground, I mean, Tagami's work, or I should say gay manga in general in Japan, I don't know that it was necessarily underground. It's just been niche. Like, it's technically available. You I guess know? I'm using those terms interchangeably. That It hasn't right. hit the kind of... I mean, I, I think of certain explicit manga that's very popular and doesn't necessarily seem to have a stigma to it see i see yeah like i see what you're saying so the pornographic content one it's not necessarily gay it's much more open or accessible sure and then when it's gay it becomes more niche yeah yeah that's for sure and i think that ties directly into this idea that the people who make it and read it um, want something really specifically meant just for them. I mean, part of gay manga is that it is somewhat a response to yaoi. Like a lot of writers are making it because they're frustrated with how inaccurate or unsatisfying yaoi has been. So in a way, I think if you write in opposition to anything, it's going to be sort of niche. Um, but yeah, I wonder, I mean, I'm not really sure. Cause I guess from where I sit, I just see all kinds of people really into it now. And maybe that's just like a change in tide. Like 
more people who aren't necessarily gay are really into hardcore gay porn. Um, sure. I mean, this also might just be, might be my perception from like working in retail for a hundred years. The stuff that yeah. was exported as like, this is the most popular content was yaoi and yeah. explicit adult material. But yeah. then when you mix the two, it seems like it took a long time for that to actually come over. I wonder, just as an experiment and for the sake of just thinking out loud, what would happen if the moneyed marketing machine actually took up hardcore gay manga? Like, I, I'm just curious what that would look like because I'm generally of the school that when anything's successful, it's because there's been a lot of marketing money, mm -hmm. but I'm not... I just wonder, like, if that makes a difference. So what has the response been to uh, to the stuff that you're bringing over and translating? Um, I, I want to know what the response is, like, kind of widely, but also specifically in the queer community. Yeah, um, it's interesting because I have, like, 20 answers to this. And I guess the first thing I want to say is that the fan community of this content has existed, pre-existed massive by 10 years. Like the internet has made a lot of this stuff available to a lot of people um, around the world. So it's, we're just giving it an official platform. And so like in following on that, um, it's interesting to see what, kind of the officialization of gay manga has done is fascinating because I come from a publishing background and not from an internet background, meaning to me, nothing starts before a contract is signed. Like it's completely unfathomable to me to borrow copyright without permission. Like that just feels, it's a crime as far as I'm concerned. Sure. So it's really interesting, and I was just having this conversation with somebody else that today the concept of copyright is so different, and I'm not going to just sit here and say that it's wrong to disseminate without permission. I mean, it is, but I understand now from like talking to a lot of people that it's confusing as fuck. Like, they want it. They want the content. They think that they're doing a favor by scanlating it. Um, they think it's harmless when it's free because no one's profiting. Um, and I, I understand that logic. It's very, you know, it's a more nihilistic approach to economics, I guess. But I, th I think what's also being lost is that this hurts the feelings of the artists to say nothing of cutting into their potential for profit. So artists hate it, right? Like, I don't, I don't think there's an artist in the world who appreciates not making money off of something that they made, but, um, but it's a little bit different than Zara profiting off of people's pins. You know what I mean? It's like fans who actually think they're doing a good thing. Right. So um, that's part one of the reception of gay manga in the U.S. Is I think 100% people are stoked that there's an official platform that makes the artists happy. That's 100% unanimous. Even 
illegal downloaders agree if that were a more formidable and convenient means of getting their content they would absolutely 100% just do it this way all the time um but it's complicated by the internet which is precisely what created the market like I didn't have to do a ton of marketing because they were already there waiting for this stuff to get printed um the second thought I have about the response is actually really just about identity stuff. Um, I'm meeting a lot of young gay men of color, mostly Asian and Latino and a lot, I mean, a lot of black men too, but in a, for different reasons, I think Asian men especially are seeing this and feeling a, a huge personal connection to the representation of Asian men as hyper-masculine, really sexy, sexual, respected, respectful, and in a way that just doesn't exist in Western media whatsoever. And if anything, Asian men are depicted as a feat, nerd, you know, just useless as men. So that's been really profound for me to see, I guess, the emancipation of gay Asian men, or just Asian men, actually, um, not necessarily gay, but the idea that, like, Asian men absolutely are masculine and are absolutely, you know, in control of their sexual destinies. And without involving martial arts, which is the other yeah. horrible stereotype. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have so many things to say about that. I mean, yeah, I think it's awesome if Asian men can be black belt ninjas um but i think it's a little bit sad if that's the only template we have for asian male heroes they can also be amazing lovers <laughs> um the the broader reception is has been good i mean i know as a you know hetero man i love looking at their work just because the craftsmanship is without peer i mean it's incredible i had to think of something that's kind of supposed to be titillating to a certain point is yeah. something that you can enjoy reading without you know like the old yeah. gag that i'm reading it for the stories but it's true i mean the <laughs> no it is true and i and i know a lot of gay artists have uh felt challenged by you know Magazine editors asked, and they would specify to artists, this needs five money shots, or this needs three bits of intercourse, or this is the special chubby edition, so, you know, he needs to be with three chubbies, or whatever. Like, it's very transactional, and I know that for some artists, that's been a challenge, like, hey, maybe I just want to do a Will and Grace type sitcom type thing. And um, that that's changing, I think, because, again, magazines aren't the central marketplace anymore. But um, it, is, it is interesting, like, how do we talk about the story with and without talking about the sex? Like, one thing I like to point out with erotica is that it's kind of unfair to call it a genre because inside erotica there is there are different genres like you know there's historical erotica there's sci-fi um there's 
batshit crazy erotica. <laughs> there's illegal erotica I won't even talk about. Um, you know, and there's just so many different stories going on. I want to talk about something completely unrelated for a minute. Yeah. You, prior to Massive, you translated some of the biggest manga uh, available, um, most popular, and also some of the most historically important um do you want to mention a couple of your favorite things that you've translated and maybe a couple of the things that you think are like canonical works that you would, would suggest people check out? Oh man. I, uh, and I want, I want you to do this partially because I, I think your recommendations are valuable, but also because I think people are going to be interested to find out when like they'll say, Oh, I read that. And without even realizing that they're reading, you know, your translation, which is, you know, your interpretation of it to a certain degree. Right. Um, I think by canonical, you're referring to Detroit Metal City. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was going to come up. Um, I had such high hopes for Detroit Metal City, which I still think is one of the funniest things I've ever worked on. Um, Everyone I know loves it. So. Yeah, I, I, I guess I just thought it was going to be like huge, but then I didn't realize... Like, um, I was talking to Layla at Viz, and she's very candid about the popular things, like, obviously, Naruto or One Piece, and I'm like, wow, I mean, that's, like, a whole other ballpark of successful. So, by those standards, DMC was a middling title, but, you know, like, for an independent publisher, I think that would have been considered a huge success. Anyway, I loved it. Um... I was rereading it recently and realized it would never get published today. Uh, just the flagrant use of the word rape in it just would aut automatically bar it from even getting out of the boardroom. I think it's just, even though it's used ironically, I know it's kind of impossible to be ironic about such a triggering word. Um, but that was something I worked on. And then I I did work on a lot of uh, Osama Tezuka's sort of archival adult work. Um, I'm not the official translator on anything there, but was working a lot on Buddha, especially. And the so Buddha by Osama Tezuka's late volume biography of Siddhartha. And um, I think that... I think anything by Tezuka, but especially the stuff he wrote in the 70s um, is so, so, so important. And you know, it's funny when I saw Gekiga sort of become a thing, so important, but it's, it's really funny to think that he, Tezuka both sort of made Gekiga inevitable as a response to children's manga, and then also tried it and killed it like was so good at it so I think that's so fascinating it's like I, I can't think of an equivalent in the U.S. but I suppose let's say maybe Roald Dahl oh yeah that's a great example well there you go you nailed the you nailed it <laughs> that's your <laughs> example somebody who created something he had to then work against and then did amazingly at the counterpoint um, Maybe you should define what Gekiga is just because it's a fairly subtle 
genre. Sure. Yeah. I guess it's like, uh, it's more like drama manga or adult manga, but not porn adult, like just mature. All I'm, I'm like, nothing I say doesn't sound like it's referring to porn, but, uh, more more dramatic, slower pace, less less for children, uh, but not necessarily erotic manga. Um, and yeah, so like Katsumi wrote sort of a manifesto um, about Gekigai. What magazine was it? Garo or whatever. It's kind of saying like, hey. It's time for more serious stuff. We're in serious times. There's wars going on. Like adults need not Astro Boy or Kimba the Lion. And then Tezuka's like, oh, well, you know, in that case, I can write Apollo song. I can write Moo. I can do Ode Kirihiro. And so good. So um, I don't know. I, I just find that all fascinating. And I think everybody should read all those titles, not the least of reasons being that I did work on some of them. Um, they're also just really important works. I'm like s- searching my mind because I've done, I have done a lot of translations and I'm, I know I'm forgetting something else really important, but <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, no, that's a, that's a good list. I mean, Detroit Metal City, I, I know you loved when you were working on it. Um, and it's a, it's a odd manga because it has a the pacing and the sense of humor in it are so jarring in a weird way it's i don't know if it were a tv show it would be like the young ones or something where it's just this odd kind of disjointed narrative that yeah i love i mean i like the base premise of it is a uh, secret identity um I think that's the thing that made it most relatable personally and what I was most intrigued by because we all, I like, I think Americans love a secret identity, right? Like a secret identity story, a guy who's like so inscrutable that you would never guess that there were a death metal vocalist or conversely that they were some like wimpy ass acoustic folk singing guitarist or whatever. But, um, yeah, it's just that also the sense of humor and a lot of the jokes I feel like were super Japanese, but mainly because it was also making fun of Western culture. Just like a lot of the things I was translating were just transliterations, like the way they were saying things like fuck you or their, their use of the word rape was really just because they actually probably don't know what the word really means like they're just kind of saying things that they thought would be provocative in the exact way that at the time it was really funny for Japanese celebrities to use these like anglicisms without understanding what they meant um you know it's kind of that joke of like the funky Japanese t-shirt that says something in English that doesn't make any sense Mm -hmm. you know what's really funny is um I was just talking to somebody about, I just started teaching actually, and I've only done one semester so far, but a friend of mine and I were talking about how um, nervous we were teaching younger people about comics. And I'm teaching like a survey course on manga that doubles as like studio credit. So it's like a bunch of young illustrators learning about like manga canon. And I just, 
like it was one of those weird sort of rainy day things where I decided to show Detroit Metal City. Oh my God, it was the day after the election, I think, and people were really bummed out. So I was like, let's just watch something completely absurd to take our minds off of it. And I was like, was that a bad idea? Because it's so bad and triggering and horrible. <laughs> And I was talking to my friend about it, and she said she has the same issue of, like, not really sure if being edgy is safe. Like, and that's not a complaint about, like, being politically correct, but just that we're we're unsure as young teachers who don't know what we're doing. And we were both completely stunned at the response, which was actually like, oh, my God, this is awesome. Like, I didn't know stuff could be this disgusting and... You know, um, in her case, she said, like, her kids are actually kind of joking about, you know, the language that everybody thinks teachers are supposed to use around them. And that, like, this outrageous stuff was actually kind of a nice relief. Well, it also, I mean, Detroit Metal City kind of implies this, like, kind of safe, charming, like, bucolic, this kind of, like, Americana classic rock. Yeah. But it's actually about, like like real deal Norwegian like church burning death metal yeah 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 exactly (laughs) which is you know I guess can be humorous if you're not aware of like the history of it it just seems like some sort of extreme parody of of death metal (laughs) yeah so tell me about the future of massive how's that for a corny interview question yeah that's a good corny interview question um the future of Massive is to, we're sort of, you know, not to sound so grandiose, but it's kind of hard to be thinking about mass merchandising and commercializing and branding when everything feels like it's on fire all the time. Mm-hmm. So I know for us, there are plenty of real world problems we can address Um explicitly or tacitly and not necessarily all concerning um gay asian manga but just tangentially related um one thing i've noticed from like just developing a group of friends and community around this brand is everybody wants to you know they basically want two things from us one is something to be proud of that makes them feel good about themselves. And the other is um, a distraction from all the bullshit. So that's, you know, I I finally figured out that that's what's important is to just create something that makes people feel good and distracted from the BS. Um, So like, I guess, you know, just more porn. (laughs) Um, And more things that are accessible and feel okay. Like, you know, if I'm being completely honest, when we started, I wasn't really thinking like of where things were manufactured or the ecological footprint or, you know, like, is this the best use of X, Y, or Z resources? I'm definitely paying more attention to like who we're becoming affiliated with. But at the same time, at the end of the day, um, it's just stuff. So I want it to feel meaningful. Um, 
Concretely speaking, the very next book that I'm currently working on are volume two of My Brother's Husband and House of Brutes, which is the most extreme, egregious, hardcore, long-form BDSM gay erotica by Tagame I have ever read. And that's saying a lot because I translated a story where a minotaur rapes a Greek soldier and he gives birth through his butt. So it's even more intense than that, if that's possible. Um, but I won't spoil anything. Everybody will have to just wait and read it. It's, I just can't say enough about it. It's nonstop. And um, that I'm really excited about that. It's, um, I used to worry about being desensitized, but like I said, everything's on fire. So this feels really appropriate. Nashka's working on some stuff, but not necessarily in the form of a book right now. Yeah, and then hopefully something amazing happens for us in the next year in terms of, like, a country. <laughs> I don't know about you as a bookseller if you remember this, but, like, bad politics makes for bad retail, like... Um, I was not a good retailer, so I didn't pay attention to, like, national trends versus my margins. <laughs> yeah, I'm just finding for sure, like, election years are kind of a downer, and then so are just generally, like, bad times. Right. But, but yeah, so, like I said, everybody seems to want a good distraction, and we aim to please, so that's what's next. Um, thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak with us. I thought it was informative and delightful. Thank you. That concludes our interview with Anne Ishii. You can check out some of the material we were talking about at massive-goods.com. I want to thank Anne again for talking to us. She's one of the smartest people I know, and I always learn a lot about comics and manga and, uh, and Japanese culture in general when we have a conversation. The Comic Book Legal Defense Fund podcast is sponsored in part by a grant from the Gaiman Foundation, but mostly from donations from listeners like yourself. Uh, we appreciate any and all support and donations. There's a couple of ways to do that. One is to visit cbldf.org and click the Donate tab. It takes you to a variety of options, including joining as a member uh, or simply just straight donating. It's all tax-deductible. The other way to help this podcast is to go to iTunes and uh, and leave us a rating. We uh, we really appreciate feedback and reviews. Uh, it helps people find the podcast and it helps us know uh, how we're doing. We also love to get feedback via our email channels. That's info at cbldf.org. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support. Our music is by the Django Reinhardt Orchestra, as always. I'm Alex Cox, and I'll talk to you next month. Thank you.